All right, we are in a series called Life with God, and here's what we're doing. It seems like it's dark out there. Is it dark out there? Could you turn up those lights out there a little bit? Thank you. Um, what we're asking is this question. What is the life God... Maybe it's just my eyes. I don't know. Uh, seemed like you disappeared for a second. Uh, we're asking this question. What is the life God wants to give us? What is the life God wants to give you? And what we're discovering is life, as it's defined in the Bible, is kind of multifaceted. And we get into trouble when we think that the life God offers only looks like one thing. It just looks like prosperity. Or it just looks like peace in your heart. Or even that it just looks like you go to heaven when you die. Life is much broader than that. And in this series, that's what we're looking at. What are all the offerings God gives us and what we've said is it kind of depends in what area we're working in. And so what we've used is a house as a metaphor to say there are basically three floors in your heart. There is the main floor, which is where we do most of our life and we interact with the world around us and the people around us and it's where we spend 95% of our time. And uh, Golden West graciously built us a set. And this is our main floor and it just sort of represents the things of life. And then we have a basement, and we're going to talk a lot about the basement in the next two weeks, so I'm not going to get that much into it, but that's our basement door right there. And then finally, we have an upper room, which is where we relate in a very uh, straightforward way with God, with our Heavenly Father, and that's represented by the stairs uh, going up on the side of the stage there. So that's what we're doing, is we're looking at life from all of these different vantage points. And I just want to encourage you, too, that um, we have... Uh, supplied a book for you to do readings during the week and if you don't have a book you can get one if you can't afford one somebody has graciously underwritten it for us so we would love to supply you and if you are doing the reading how many of you are reading the book good job all right well if you're doing it you should be around chapter 14 okay because everybody's confused where should we be around chapter 14 would be good and you're going to start reading about the basement this week and let me just finally say this we're spending two weeks in the basement Today, we're getting into the basement, okay? Next week, we're getting out of the basement. And so I really want to encourage you, if you're traveling next week, you're not going to be here on Sunday, go online and listen to the message because I don't want to leave you in the basement. We want to get out of the basement. That's the goal. All right, so to set us up and introduce us to the basement is going to be Mr. Johnny Cash. And uh, if you saw the movie, Walk the Line, we're going to show you a clip from that. As you see it, here's what I want you to do. Don't detach because you're just like, well, those are actors and this isn't real. For one thing, Johnny Cash was a real person. This is his life. Also don't detach because you think, well, that's not my problem. What Johnny Cash deals with is not my problem. Doesn't matter. We all have a problem. And so try to put yourself in the place of what would it be like to be in Johnny Cash's shoes. So watch this. Mama, Johnny Cash is here! Hey, girls. Hey, Carlene. You're so nice. Hey, Johnny. Mama, Johnny Cash is here! Hi, Mother Mabel. Hey, John. How are you doing? Doing all right. Hi, June. Hi, John. 
Hey, girls, can you go inside the living room and clean up that mess? All right, honey. I tried to call Jean, but I think there's something wrong with the phone. Look at you. Have you looked in a mirror lately? How are you going to sing when you can't even talk? I got the laryngitis. <laughs> Remember? Marry me, June. Oh, please, get up off your knees. You look pathetic. Come on. I don't want girls seeing somebody like this. Come on, baby. Where's my friend John? Did he get high? Or is he incognito? Is he gone? Because I don't like this guy, Cash. I ain't incognito. I'm right here. You see? I'm here. Fine. Where's your car? Piss and makeup. You walked here? Yeah. You walked here all the way from Nashville? Yeah, well, walking's good for you. See, I'm trying to get into shape, dude. It cleans out your system. Well, it's a spiritual thing. I'm on a love walk. The June Carter love walk. Immemorial. You know what? I am supporting more than myself right now. Please do not blow another tour. Oh, June loves more important than a tour. Is that right? Yes, it is. Well, then start loving yourself so we can go back to work. All right, dude. Hey, you keep your phone on, and I will too. I'll call. I'll call you. When you're feeling better, I'll call. Carter, Jim Carter, you give me some time. How much longer will it be till I can, till I can call you, my? You see, Johnny, what you're telling me, and you're gonna stick around. And then Johnny will buy you a nice wife. When I was in the house that I was raised in, we had a basement. And I learned actually really early on that the basement was a great place to hide. It was a great place to do secret things. And I remember either you know, taking a dessert that I shouldn't have or going down, finding something and wanting to check it out and sneaking down into the basement. And I realized that it was very thrilling to go into the basement. But many times what I'd come out with was a partner that I didn't go in with, which was guilt. I'd feel guilty about being down there. And here's the reality, is in church, we so often skim over the fact that we deal with basement issues. And in fact, church may be, there may be more phoniness and more pretense Sunday mornings in our country than any other time where we all pretend that, hey, my life used to have basement issues, but now I'm good. Now everything is fine. Now God's changed my life and turned me around. And the problem is, is we go undercover with these issues that are actually still issues in our life. And so here's the first thing that I want us to do. I want us to admit we still have a basement. Okay. Now by admitting it, I'm not saying that you're always in it or that you've got some huge dark thing that's just sucking you under. Uh, for some of us, that may be the case. 
But we all have the capacity to be pulled under into the basement. We all have things that tempt us, and we need to admit it or we'll never deal with it. So on three, we're all going to say, I've got a basement, okay? On three, let's say it. Say it with pride. Say it loudly. Say it with full confession, okay? Are you ready? Can you do this? All right, why don't we just stand up? Because I'm standing, and I'm going to say it, and I just want us to be say this with full conviction, okay? All right, on three, let's hear it. I've got a basement. One, two, three. I've got a basement. And before you sit, just look at the person next to you and just say, and so do you. Okay, all right, and have a seat. All right, there you go. Now we're all out, okay? We've all been outed. We've all been outed. Now let me just tell you what the basement is. The basement is where we go to do things where we feel, we know that it's wrong. We just know that it's wrong, but there's something that pulls us. There's something where we want to color outside of the lines. And uh, the reality is, if our basement was revealed, if I actually said, we're not just going to say I've got a basement, but one by one, you're all going to come up on the stage and share what your basement is, you would not come up here. You would just go like right out that door because nobody wants to share. Everybody's ashamed. We all feel badly about the basement stuff. And that leads us to keep it secret. And the problem with keeping basement issues secret is they tend to grow. They tend to get worse. And we as Christians, as people that go to church, and if you're not, maybe you're a lot more honest than, than some of us, uh, we tend to be the worst at it. We tend to have the biggest gulf between what we admit to and what our lives very often, are, at least parts of our lives, have. So that's what we want to do today. Now let me just tell you, the Bible doesn't do this. If you read the Bible, if you've read the Bible, and you go through the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament bend over backwards to show that their heroes, the people that have the strongest faith, the people you think of outside of Jesus, the people you think of are the heroes of the Jewish or the Christian faith, the Bible bends over backwards to show their flat sides, to expose areas of the basement that they live in. And we're going to look at perhaps the greatest figure of the Old Testament and look at a basement issue that the Bible comes very clean with. And so the guy's name is David. David was a king of Israel. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 11, so you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hands up because we have people that would love to give you a Bible and then you can sort of read along with us what we're doing. Just raise your hand. We'll give you a Bible. Keep your hand up until you get it. And uh, David is such an interesting character because he had sort of a moniker or uh, he was dubbed. He was given a certain name. He was called the man after God's own heart. It's, it's one of the greatest, greatest sort of nicknames or monikers that anybody gets in the Bible. The man after God's own heart. And you might just be totally amazed to see this story and, and just wonder, how could David have done this and be called the man after God's own heart? So in uh, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, let's go ahead and we'll start looking at this story. It sets it up with these words. It says, In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. This is an interesting story, and so it says, In the spring when the kings normally go off to war, which is sort of an interesting statement, it's sort of like, 
you know, the bees are buzzing and the birds are singing and the kings go off to war. That's what happens in the springtime. But the reason that that happened is because in those days, if you went off to war, you had to make sure that you could feed your army. And if you went in the middle of winter, there was nothing to feed the army with. You couldn't live off the land. And so everybody had to go home over Christmas break. Of course, there was no Christmas break, but winter break. And then they would come back out in the spring. So things would warm up and kings would go, ah, it's time to go fight. And everybody go back out onto the battlefields. Well, David's army is going out to fight against Ammon, which had been a huge thorn in the side to Israel. And we read here that finally Israel gets the better of them and is going to beat them. But in their capital city, Rabbah, uh, they had all sort of collapsed back into the city, the enemy, and so now they were laying siege to the city. And remember, laying siege to the city is not attacking it, it's surrounding it and starving them out. So this is now a process that's going to take, you know, weeks and months to starve the people out, and once they, you know, starve enough, then they'll go in and attack the city. So this is kind of the thing that's going on. And it just mentions sort of as a footnote, David remains behind in Jerusalem. In other words, all the kings go, but not David the king. David stays in Jerusalem. As we continue reading in verse 2, it says, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And, uh, you know, you might notice he got up at night. What is that? But in that culture, people would take naps in the afternoon usually, and so David's getting up from the nap that pretty much everybody takes. He goes to the coolest place in the house, which is up on the palace roof, and he's looking around, and all of a sudden, he goes, whoa. And maybe he turns his eyes at first, but then he turns his eyes back, and pretty soon, he's consumed with what he's watching. Now, commentators have said the fact that David remained in Jerusalem was a problem that he was uh, not doing the thing that kings were supposed to do at that time, which was to lead their army. And whether David had made a mistake by staying in Jerusalem or not, or it just happened to fall out the way that it did, the first thing to know about the basement is our battle with the basement is fought to a large degree before we ever get to the basement door. It has to do with where we place ourselves. It has to do with what we... Uh, what we put uh, into our environment or the places that we go, the people we associate with, even reading ourselves and knowing ourselves well enough to know, you know what, this is an area that's a problem for me. This is an area where if I get by the basement door, it's going to eventually really tempt me to be in this place at this time. I remember when I was leading high school ministry a long time ago that we had one of the girls, she was very zealous, and she would tell me, I, uh, I so much want to reach my friends that I'm going to go to parties, and I'm going to go to the parties so that I can, you know, sort of share Jesus with them and, and, you know, sort of do this thing. And I said, I think that's really a bad idea. I just don't think that's the place to do it. And she said, no, 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 no. This would be great. And, of course, later what I heard is, you know, she was sharing a lot more than Jesus at these parties. And all of a sudden she got this reputation, and there was kind of all these problems that started to come from her life because she didn't recognize that, you know what, that was a tempting place for her. And while she might have had some good intentions, there was also sort of a darker side of her that was justifying, I can go to these parties and they won't touch me. And yet she didn't know herself well enough. 
So I want to ask you a question, okay? All of us have a basement, but all of us have different things that pull us into the basement. So let me just give you an example for me. I can go to a bar, and it is not tempting to me at all. I don't like the taste of alcohol. When it's offered to me, I generally say no. And if I say yes, it's more because of the peer pressure to do it rather than that I want it. Uh, that is not a temptation. I can go to bars all day. I can go to a casino all day. I am not interested in gambling. You could you know, put me in any setting. I'm not going to gamble. That's not going to be a problem for me. Going to a movie that has a lot of sexy scenes, that's a problem for me. That's a place where I've got to be really careful because that is something that can pull me into the basement. Uh, Black Friday is not tempting to me at all. I will not go shopping. I will feel so comfortable watching football at home. Uh, but I, so I have my areas where I know that I've got to be careful. I know that if I hang around the basement door, I'm in trouble. And for other people, it's totally different. And I just want to ask you the question, what is it for you? What is that thing that tends to suck you in? All of us have something. Even Jesus was tempted. So, you know, if you think it's a mark of godliness that you would not be tempted, Jesus was tempted. We're all tempted. It is a wise person that understands, this is what gets me. This is what sucks me in. This is what I need to be so careful about. The other thing to recognize is there's times in your life where you're more susceptible, okay? So let me just ask you a question. Do you think that you're more, how many would, raise your hand if this is true of you. I am more susceptible to temptation when I feel a lot of pressure, okay? When I feel a lot of pressure, okay? Raise your hand if that's true. How about for those of you, how about when I'm tired, that's when I'm most susceptible to some kind of temptation, okay? All of us have something. For some of us, it's when actually things are going really well, and for some reason, we sabotage ourselves. Things are going great, and they're going too good. I'm just going to plunge into the basement. And you know what the reality is? I can relate to all of those things. There are times when I fail and I go into the basement. There's times when I win and I go into the basement. There's times when I'm tired and I go into the basement. There's times when I feel pressure and I go into the basement. I can go into the basement really with any of those things, you need to understand that. And then finally, who are the people that you get around that tend to pull you toward the basement? Uh, many of us have people that influence us in a bad way. And the Bible says that, you know, bad company corrupts good character. And it really is true. The people you hang out with have a huge impact on whether you go to the basement door or go into the basement. And then those that tend to be the ones that pull you out or are just great influences for you. So these are all things David did not pay attention to that. And he got himself into a jam, and we're going to see how he handled it. His first mistake is he wasn't where he should have been. He wasn't where he should have been. But then there's a second mistake that he makes. The second mistake uh, is <clears throat> in verse 3, it says, But David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself um, from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home, 
the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. All right, the Bible is marvelously uh, concise in its storytelling. There is a lot that happens in that part of the story. First thing, we learn who Bathsheba is. Bathsheba, uh, what we find out is her grandfather was David's closest advisor. Her father was one of his greatest fighters. And Uriah, now her husband, was in called the Circle of 30, the 30. It was the most elite fighting squad that Israel had, sort of the Navy SEALs. In other words, this was a family that was totally devoted to David. And Bathsheba is Uriah's wife. So David is out on his uh, roof. He looks around. He sees someone that he doesn't know, but immediately is attracted to. He takes time then to decide, should I do something about this? Then he calls in one of his servants, and he says, I need you to find out about this woman that is over there. I need you to get information about her. The servant goes off, gets information about her, comes back to David and says, that's Bathsheba, and gives sort of the biographical data about Bathsheba. After that, David has to wrestle with, this is from one of my most loyal families. Over decades, they have dedicated themselves to me and my kingdom. What am I going to do about this? Then he finally makes a decision. I'm going to go ahead and send for her. So he takes the time to call in another servant, tells that servant, I want you to go and get Bathsheba and bring her to me. Then he waits until the servant brings Bathsheba. Then Bathsheba comes into you know, his palace, probably his palace bedroom, I guess. And there's small talk, I imagine. And they're sort of getting to know each other. And there's just sort of discussions about things. And one thing leads to another. And finally, David sleeps with her. Now, here's the point that I want to make. That took a while. That wasn't like a temptation just hit, and all of a sudden I was in bed with her, and I didn't even know what had happened. No, there was a lot of thinking that went along. In other words, David, once the temptation hit, once he had the initial vision and the initial sight, or the first time the thought crossed his mind, this is what I want to do, he had all kinds of time to back out of that decision and make a better decision. But you know what he did? He delayed making a decision. Now, it doesn't sound that way in the story, because it sounds like, you know, he just sort of moves right along, and it's super quick, and he decides from the moment he sees her, I'm going to sleep with that woman, and I'm going to get her here, and this is just going to be great. But I don't think so. I don't think so. Just knowing how people's minds work, I think that he rationalized and justified all the way through the process. Hey, there's nothing wrong with getting some information about her. I mean, really, is there anything wrong with that? There's nothing wrong even with just sending for her. I mean, it's just two people having a discussion. It's just not that big of a deal. Even when she gets up into his room, hey, the conversation, if somebody was to walk in, I could justify it. It would be easy enough to explain this away. This is not a big deal. But here's the problem. The further he goes without turning and making a decision to run from it, the closer he is to disaster, the faster things move. When I was a little kid, uh, there was a magazine called Look. Do you guys, any remember Look magazine? Okay, so it's not been around for a long time. 
But they had this uh, feature at the end that was called parting shots, and it was just a bunch of pictures of things. And I remember one time the parting shots were all pictures of people right before they died. And I was a little kid. I'd never, it was just fascinated me. One picture was of a kid on a raft, and it was a blurry picture, and he was out in the middle of this river that was moving pretty quickly. And underneath it just had this caption. This boy was playing around in the Niagara River further upstream on a raft, and uh, he got caught in the current, and these, this is literally uh, seconds before he plunges over the falls to his death. And I looked at it, and I was just like, that kid was like my age. And I'm just like, how would that feel to be that kid about to go over Niagara Falls? And then I started to think, how did that happen? Well, you know, when he initially started playing, when he built the raft, when he started playing upriver and it was a real gentle current and so forth, he probably thought, no big deal. No big deal. I can get over to the side anytime. This is awesome. And then he thought, but wouldn't it be kind of cool to go a little faster and go down the river a little further? And so he did it, and then he thought, well, I could get out of this at any time. But then he goes a little faster and a little further, and pretty soon he can't get out of it. Pretty soon, he is totally stuck. Pretty soon, he's going to die. And you know, that is the nature of the basement. The basement calls to us and we think, ah, there's no harm in listening. There's no harm in a little taste here. There's no harm on, on getting with someone that spent some time down in the basement in this area. There's just no harm with it. But the reality is, now the pace is picking up. And now, pretty soon, the decisions you thought you could easily make are not so easy to make. And eventually, we get to a place where we almost feel like, I don't even have a decision to make anymore. I mean, I'm caught in this. And the wise person always recognizes, listen, I need to control my environment so I don't get into the current. And when the temptation hits, my initial reaction has to be, I've got to get out. I've got to get out. This is not the time to stand and fight. There's a verse that we're going to use, and this is our memory verse, and I'm not giving a lot of solutions this week. We'll talk more about solutions on the other side. But this is our memory verse, and this is such a great verse. It's the longest one you have to memorize, so uh, that's why I'm giving you an extra week to do it. Um, but this is such a good one, okay? And it says this. It's 1 Corinthians 10.13. Will you read this with me out loud? It says this. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Okay, so just quiz on that. What does God provide when you're tempted? All right, does he provide laser x-ray vision where you can blow up the temptation out of your eyes? No. Does he provide this incredibly strong, ironclad will that you will never cross the line if you stay in contact with this? No. He doesn't. And that's how we act sometimes. You know what? I'm strong enough. I'm not going to fall to this. That's not what God provides. God says, I'll always give you a way out. The wise person will look at something that is pulling him or her toward the basement and will recognize God's given me a way to get out of this. And the wise person takes God up on it doesn't stand there and try to fight. Those of us that stand and try to fight the basement, there's a word for us. We are sinners. We fall into the basement every time. Fighting is not 
the answer that God gives. He says, escape, run away. You're not strong enough to keep fighting this. Uh, years ago, I was running with a friend, and we were running down by the beach, and uh, I was in front of him, and as we were running, it was summer, and we passed this woman that was walking in front of us, and she was wearing a very small uh, bathing suit and just looked great, and uh, he saw me as we were running past stare at her, and uh, he just said to me behind me, he said, Kevin, don't look twice, and, uh, and so we ran past him, or ran past this woman, and uh, and after uh, we sort of laughed about it, and he said, nobody can help looking once. It's when you look twice that you start to get into trouble. And that is such wise counsel. You know, knowing David couldn't help seeing Bathsheba. It was when he looked twice. You know, you might not be able to help the fact that, you know, when a sale comes in the newspaper and your first draw is, I need to go and I need to buy everything that that store sells because I love what that store sells, all right? So you can't help that, but you can help getting in your car and driving to the store, all right? You know, you might not be able to help the fact that somebody offers you a drink, but you can help whether you're going to turn around and walk away or you're going to entertain the thought or you're going to take the drink and say, well, I won't drink it. It's the second that always gets us. And the wise person recognizes, I've got to cut this off right at the feet. I just can't get into it. David didn't do that. Now, there's a third mistake that David made. And let me hit this quickly. And this will, in a way, the mistakes all get worse. And this is his worst mistake. His worst mistake is he does what we've been watching Penn State do over the past uh, two or three weeks. It's called the cover-up, right? You guys all watching Penn State and the cover-up? Call that a little problem for Penn State right now? Let me just ask you the question. Of the two, and they're both bad, what do you think is getting Penn State in more trouble? That they had an employee that did something as heinous as what it appears that this coach had done? Or that Penn State spent about two decades covering it up? What do you think is getting Penn State in more trouble at this point? It's always, listen folks, it is always the cover-up that's going to get you. And let me just say it this way. We sin. We've got a basement. You are going to spend some time in the basement. I, you know, unless you're Jesus, you go into the basement at some point. That's not an issue here. We deal with basement issues. Next week, we're going to talk about how to stay out of the basement if we can possibly do it, and how to get out of it if we're in it. But we do that. Here's the problem. When we cover it up, we do so much more damage. And in the story, and you've got it written in your outlines or you can read it in the Bible, David does a huge cover-up. And the cover-up eventually means that he sends Uriah to his death. He tries to cover it up in other ways. He's thinking, if I can just get Uriah back and he can spend a night with Bathsheba, then he'll think it's his child and I'll be off the hook and everything will be okay. It doesn't work because ironically Uriah is too noble to do that and so he doesn't. And so David finally goes to this just terrible plan that he says to his commander, he says, put Uriah in front of the fighting men and then pull back so that he dies. And what we learn is it wasn't just Uriah that died. Some of the best men that David had fighting died that day all to cover up something that David shouldn't have done, all to cover up his basement issue. And that's another thing that we learned. In the cover-up, 
innocent people get caught in it and get hurt. When we cover up, people get hurt. But eventually, it becomes clear for David that as bad as it was to sleep with somebody else's wife, the worst thing he did was to cover it up and to murder an innocent man. And just think about this. Uh, and this has happened to me more than once, but I'll give you one illustration. A few years ago, I was counseling with <clears throat> a couple, and uh, the guy had had an affair. And the wife was talking to me about it, and she was now moving toward divorce. And I said, you know, why, why are you doing it? I think you have biblical grounds to divorce. And, and so I'm not asking from that standpoint. Just tell me, what is it? And she said, you know, Kevin, it really wasn't the fact that he had an affair. I mean, that was brutal, and it devastated me. What did she tell me? What had wiped out the marriage for her? It was the cover-up, right? It was all the lies. And she said, I just can't believe him anymore. For so long, he lied to me about this. For so long, he swore to me that there was nothing. And he convinced me. And I'm in a place now where I don't know that I could ever trust him, that I could ever do that. And I just don't know how I can be married to somebody that I can't, can't trust. So it, it does us well to learn from David. Here's the deal. David was the man after God's own heart, and he went to the basement. The issue for us is we're going to go, but how are we going to respond after? Are we going to have the right strategy, which is to come clean, as hard as it is, come clean. Don't make it any worse. Just admit it. You guys know Roger Clemens, right, the baseball pitcher? Yeah? Roger Clemens, is he in some trouble right now? Why is he in trouble? Steroids, right? Is it actually the steroids why he's in trouble? No. Why is he in trouble? The cover-up. There's another pitcher on the Yankees, very same time, took steroids, a guy named Andy Pettit. Most of you have never heard of him. You know why? Because he came clean as soon as it came out. He said, yes, I took them. Story went away. He did something wrong, but he didn't compound it. And Roger Clemens has compounded it. We are wise to realize coming clean is the best thing. Now, David did a lot of bad things, a lot of wrong things. He went to the basement door. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. When the temptation hit, instead of fleeing it, he entertained it, and he entertained it, and he entertained it, and finally he succumbed. And then afterwards, instead of coming clean, he hit it, he covered it up, he made matters so much worse. But finally, David was outed. There was a prophet that came to him named Nathan, and somehow God had given him the insight, and Nathan comes, and he exposes David in the court. All of his people are around him, and he basically says, David, what you've done is not good. David did one thing right, and I want us to leave with this, because most of us have done the wrong parts. When Nathan said this to David, Uh, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, it says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Finally, after all of his running, 
after all of his manipulation, after all of his lying, David finally says, all right, I'm just going to come clean. God, you know what I've done. I'm not going to try to pull anything over on you. That's foolish anyway. I have sinned. And David didn't just say it to God. He said it to Nathan. He said it to the people in his court. He came clean. I have sinned. Yes, I did that. As embarrassing as that is, as shamed as I feel, as humiliating as it is, as much as I want to try to explain it to you, because I've got my reasons and you need to hear my reason. No, I'm not going to say that. I just, I've blown it. I've just blown it. And then God, this is so great, and this is what you've got to catch. God says this, I have taken away your sin. You know, David, before you even asked for it, I forgave you. I'm glad you asked, because I'm glad that we're together now. I'm glad that you understand that I forgive you. But this is so important to understand. The reason we feel alienated from God when we're in the basement is not because God's turned his back. It's because we've turned our back. It's because we've said we're going our own way. We're the ones that have broken the bridge with God. God says, if you'll just turn back toward me, you'll see that I'm with you. You don't even have distance to make up. I'm with you right now. I'll forgive you right now. Our relationship can be restored right now. I won't hold back. It is the most amazing thing that God does for us. And it's a thing that we need to know. Now, next week, we're going to talk about practical ways because we don't want to get into the basement. And here's the reality. David's kingdom was never the same. His life was never exactly the same after the sin. There are consequences to going in the basement that God does not wipe out. We carry him with us. And that was for David. And his kingdom changed because of it. But our relationship with God does not need to be compromised if we'll turn back because God already has his arms open wide. God is already saying, just turn around. I'm right here for you right now. I want you in my arms. I'll help you get out of the basement. We can do this together. I saw you, and I weep for you on every step you took going down those steps. Every time I was saying, please don't, please don't, don't go there. This is not good for you. And as soon as you turned around, I grabbed you back into my arms and said, let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. And that is the way that God operates. That is the story of the New Testament. It is the main theme of the cross. That God is with us always. And David ends up writing one of the very most powerful psalms that has to do with forgiveness. So let me just read the psalm to you. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. Against you and, al and you alone have I sinned. 
I have done what is evil in your sight. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the heart, so that you can teach me to be wise in my inmost being. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Restore to me again the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. The context for our basement is God's love. It is so important to understand you are not in there on your own. God still loves you. God still forgives you. God still empowers you. No matter how many times and how much you shook your fist at God, God did not turn away from you. He just didn't. So I have three questions to just ask you. And believe, believe me when I say I ask myself the same things. Is there an area in your life where you are hanging at the basement door? You haven't gone in. You can justify it to anyone. No one would question you, but you know in your mind you're playing with fire. You know you're on the raft upstream in the current, and you're thinking about getting into the middle of the current and going a little faster. Is there something like that that is happening to you right now? Because in a second, I'm going to give you a chance, uh, just quietly, to yourself and to God to say, I've got to stop this. Maybe I need to bring somebody else into this and tell them, this is an area for me. Will you just hold me accountable? Maybe it's just making a really strong determination right now. I'm going to move away from it or I'm going to get rid of that temptation so it's not in my life. For some of you, the temptation is hit. You're right here. You're, you totally can relate to this message because you're being ripped apart by you haven't succumbed to it yet, but whoa, it's in front of you. Today is the day to run. Today is the day to run. Make your decision. I'm running from this. Whatever it takes for me to run away, that's what I'm doing today because I'm not going down the basement. I know how that ends. I'm not going there. And then for some of us, we're in the basement right now and we're functioning. We're here at church. But there is a part of us that we feel so embarrassed about, so shamed about, and maybe we've been covering it up. Maybe we're pretending everything's good and everything's not good. And today's the day to come clean. And in a second, you're going to have a chance to come clean with God. And you know what? There's amazing power in that. Just saying to God, this is my problem. I have sinned, Lord. I have sinned. This is my issue. And later today may be the day where you need to talk to somebody else and say, I've got to get somebody else in the game. James tells us to confess our sins one to another and to be healed. And there is power in telling somebody else our story. We're nervous about it because we think, oh my gosh, they'll think so, they'll, they'll just think so poorly of me. But let me just ask you, when somebody confesses a sin to you, do you think poorly of them usually? No. You usually think, wow, that took a lot of courage. And I've got my stuff too. So would you bow your heads and I'd just like to give you a chance to pray. Lord, we pause and we recognize that we are very human. And when we talk about the basement, we are talking about issues that are near and dear to our heart. And it doesn't matter if we've been a Christian for a long time 
or we're new at it or maybe not even a Christian yet. Doesn't matter if our job's a pastor of a church. Doesn't matter if our parents were Christians. This is an issue for us and we admit it. And I pray right now for those that are hanging at the basement door. Lord, give us wisdom to get away from that. Just before it even gets started, help us to see the problem and to change our environment. And for those, Lord, of us that are right now being tempted, we're sitting here and maybe we even have plans right after church to go and do something that we know we shouldn't do. And I pray that you just give us the wisdom to run. Lord, right now, help us to just tell you, I'm running. some of us we are caught in a cover up and we've been so dishonest about this part that maybe we even believe some of the lies that we're telling and now Lord we just want to come clean David said you desire honesty from our heart help us to be honest right now Lord accept our confession Jesus, give us, give us the strength to come clean, to tell someone. We are so grateful, Jesus, that you are there for us. You forgave us before we even knew to ask. Thank you so, so much for that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.